What is up, y'all? Welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of the tentatively titled HeshCast. This is a show where we look at current events in politics, media, internet culture, and pretty much anything in between. And uh, I'm going to do this from the perspective of the streets of the proletariat and uh, through my personal lens of cynicism and like borderline nihilism sometimes, as like edgy and shitty as that is. Uh, I'm the host, EJ Shahada, and while this is technically a solo pod, uh, I'll have guests on most episodes and the occasional co-host for now. I would love to have a full-time co-host, but uh, as of recording, uh, my recording equipment and space and schedule uh, unfortunately are not conducive uh, to my having a full-time co-host. Maybe further down the line, like once this show has proven that it has some promise and staying power, I'll be able to upgrade those conditions and bring on a second host. Uh, But in order to be able to cover all of that, I will most likely need an active Patreon user base, uh, which probably won't be realistic for at least a few months. Uh, As of right now, I don't even have an official logo, so we'll see how all that goes. Moving on. Uh, Some of the items that I will be covering in today's episode are uh, the full Mueller report having finally been released publicly. Uh, We'll talk about some of the highlights of that and how it impacts life in America, if if it does, in fact, at all. Uh, We'll also be talking about Donald Trump's recent phone call with the uh, renegade general from Libya, Khalifa Hifter, and how that may or may not affect a shift in some U.S. foreign policies. I'm going to talk about David and Louise Turpin, the Riverside, California couple who were sentenced to 25 years to life for torturing 12 of their 13 children for their entire lives. Um, on a kind of lighter note, I'm going to be talking about uh, ben and Jerry's giving away free ice cream to cannabis consumers for whatever reason hippies do shit. Uh, and Uber having raised $1 billion for self-driving cars because it desperately needs the money to stay alive. I'm going to talk about how to stop Alexa from consistently eavesdropping on you uh, as she does all the time. Always. Right now. Even. Uh... Also, we're going to talk about the heiress to the Seagram's liquor and ginger ale fortune and her connections uh, to a criminal sex cult, uh, having just pleaded guilty to, to some charges surrounding that and uh, a pyramid scheme that is connected to it. Um, also, gonna going to discuss a new study that showed that uh, great white sharks might not be the fearless apex predators that we've always known them to be, and in fact that they are terrified of orca whales also uh there's some troubles facing the ultra orthodox jewish community as we approach uh passover 5779 regarding their ideological opposition to vaccinations uh we're also going to talk about some things going on in the world of music movies tv and comic books which is my personal wheelhouse well like comic books manga anime all that shit um, that's kind of like my address, but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna not hyper focus on that as much as possible. Um, but first, uh, 
since this is like the inaugural episode of this podcast, I want to give you all kind of a condensed background on myself so you can get a better understanding of where my super hot takes are coming from. I was born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana to immigrant parents. My mom is from Egypt and uh, she was raised Muslim, but she converted to Judaism in order to be with my father, who was uh, raised Orthodox uh, in in Israel, actually, but he ended up splitting before I was born anyway, so that was fucking tight. Um, and uh, my dad had, like, defected from the Jewish faith, you know, but he held on to, like, the culture and some of the traditions, but making my mom convert wasn't really so much about religion, I think, as it was about controlling her. And, uh, like, his parents were also very Jewish, obviously, my grandparents. Uh, and while he was never in my life, my grandparents were a very big part of it. Uh, they helped my mom raise me through most of my childhood. So uh, I was raised very Jewish as well. But um, for the most part, like, my, my grandparents took me to, uh, like, a modern Orthodox temple when I went to shul with them. But otherwise, uh, I was I was raised in the Reformed Jewish community, and uh, my house, other than me, was my mom and my six sisters. Uh, I don't have any brothers, no dad, nothing like that. There was the occasional, like my mom had a boyfriend here and there, but there was no static, like steady male influence. So having like that many women in my home and no other dudes, uh, I think it allowed me to gain a unique like, perspective and understanding of womanhood. Uh, like, even though I've never been through all of the horrible things that women experience, you know, from, like, uh, being terrified when you get your first period and don't know what's happening, to labor pains, to, uh, you know, being catcalled and being afraid every time you leave your house, especially at night, you know, because there might be just a man who wants to hurt you or you know defile you in some way and like I know that there there's absolutely no way that anyone who isn't a woman could ever possibly understand uh just, just the way that the world works for women but I do feel like I am able to empathize more personally than a lot of other men because I, you know, I, I just grew up kind of vicariously experiencing all of these elements of womanhood at once between seven different girls, you know. Uh, I grew up in the St. Claude community uh, in like the 8th and ninth wards of uh, New Orleans and like the downtown area. Uh, I was raised between the Desire Housing Projects and like the St. Rock neighborhood. Uh, I became a gang member uh, when I was 11 years old. I was jumped in as a result of uh, my having taken some some felony charges for one of my friends who was a blood, and uh, these charges would have been his third strike. And he was 16, but he would have been tried as an adult and uh, and would be facing a lot of time. And I was 11 and had never been in trouble. So it was just it was just second nature to me, like having grown up in a culture of of you know not snitching and a culture of of criminal honor, 
that uh, you know I told the police that I had committed those crimes and I ended up being charged with grand larceny and breaking and entering and a couple other miscellaneous firearms charges and uh, as such I, I was sentenced to serve 17 months in the Louisiana Office of Juvenile Justice but prior to my sentencing um, I was jumped in by, uh, by some kids from the neighborhood so uh, that was the beginning of my criminal career uh, over the next five years I uh, spent a lot of time six years actually I spent a lot of time in and out of the office of juvenile justice and group homes and, and juvenile detentions and whatever um, just you know as a result of my gang membership and, and being a very white passing person in a predominantly black gang in a predominantly black neighborhood in a predominantly black city uh, it was very important to me that I prove myself uh, in a way that that most other people didn't have to and the result of that was my spending a great deal of time incarcerated um, in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina rolled around I had uh, I was actually locked up at the time but I only had a few weeks left on my sentence and they ended up commuting that and I was released on the spot um, following Katrina my family and I moved to Richmond Virginia where I finished my last year of high school and ultimately went to college uh, I attended Virginia Commonwealth University. I majored in American literature uh, with a minor in creative writing. Uh, writing was definitely my passion, but I felt like the literature degree kind of uh, added a little bit of gravity to it and uh, thought that that would somehow kickstart my, my career, uh, you know, going forward there, but, uh, you know, having been locked up in a gang member for so long, I was already covered in tattoos, I already had teardrop fucking tattoos on my face, and Crip Killer tattooed on my hands, all kind of shit that, that absolutely negated any, like, any chance of my working in a, in a school, um, but luckily, I, throughout my college experience, uh, had a couple poems published and uh, I had begun doing stand-up comedy at just different open mics around the city and uh, I ended up getting a couple like paid gigs on the road so I was I was doing comedy in, in Baltimore and Philly and DC and Charlotte North Carolina and places like that and that kind of combined with uh, with the articles and poetry that I had written that was that were uh, published, I caught the eye of uh, some some employees, a couple staff writers, and an editor at the Onion in Chicago, and I was offered a job at the Onion, and I took that and I moved to Chicago and I worked for them for a few years. Uh, worked for Clickhole, which is like a daughter. Uh, publication of their well, daughter website of theirs. I uh, you know was writing videos for Clickhole, and uh, that was all fucking fine and good. But I just eventually felt like I needed to see what else was out there. So I quit that and I began uh, sort of doing some freelance writing and followed the American dream <clears throat> uh, as I had developed it in my head. 
which, uh, like, I started, I started riding freight trains because uh, all of the great alcoholics and addicts throughout literary history well, in the 1900s had been doing that, so it felt like that was my thing. So I uh, hopped freight trains and I wrote about it and I got shit published and I kind of lived on that for a while. Um, and like during all of this time, I was still doing comedy as well and sort of getting my name known uh, around the country by means of train. And uh, I ended up landing a gig at Cracked.com where I worked very happily for a little while uh, until the company downsized and pretty much every staff writer got fired. Everyone got fired that wasn't an editor, like a major well-known uh personality from that website and uh the editor-in-chief jack o'brien who was my boss uh ended up leaving the company and whether i was going to get fired or not i would have quit because jack was my only reason for being there um following following my departure from cracked i just began um i just began freelancing again and i was living in california at this point because of cracked I uh, began freelancing, traveling around a little bit, this time not by train, just kind of seeing where, where life took me. Um, and uh, so that, that lasted a couple years, and I ended up in a rehab in Connecticut and deciding that uh, this wasn't the life that I needed. Came back to California, uh, got a job at Complex, which is actually located in New York. Uh, when I was in Connecticut, I had like made some contacts there. But uh, I was able to work from home at with Complex, and I, I love California, so I came back here. Uh, got fired from Complex over uh, over some gang-related shit that happened at Complex Con. Since then, I have been freelancing again. That's what I'm doing currently, and I'm still doing stand-up. And now I'm doing this podcast. So uh, that's that's that. That's what my life has been so far uh, throughout that. Uh, I, you know, I was radicalized being a, a person who is of Arab descent and uh, a member of the Jewish culture. I am very anti-fascist. Uh, I was radicalized in my teenage years through punk rock. And, um, you know, I, I consider myself an anarcho-communist or an anarcho-syndicalist, sometimes just a communist. You know, there's, there's, it's all blanket terms for, like, basically one, uh, diverse ideology um i'm a leftist and i'm an aggressive leftist i i firmly believe in punching nazis i firmly believe in kicking nazis fucking you know direct action we'll call it direct action i don't know what all i am legally allowed to say here or you know what can be used against me in the court of law so uh Let's just say I condone violence toward Nazis. Uh, take that however you will. Um, but my personal politics are not going to be a major proponent of this podcast. Uh, that's going to be relegated to the Bash Back podcast that I am also going to be hosting on this network. Uh, but I haven't got that off the ground yet. Right now, this is my news and media and whatever podcast from the perspective of the streets, from the perspective of a gang member, from the perspective of, of a punk rocker, 
you know, the, the fucking downtrodden, the poor people, the, the, the impoverished, um, kind of how we look at the news, and also, I'm just, like, a huge fucking nerd, I always have been, so we're gonna talk about nerd shit, and, uh, there's gonna be some, some humor involved, maybe, because I am a comic, and I love comedy, that's not the, that's not by any means the goal of this podcast um but you know some of my some of my guests will be comedians and uh you know maybe we'll have a chuckle or two uh so yeah that's that's pretty much me in a nutshell i have gone on for way too long about all of that uh but i felt like i should just get it out of the way uh just right up top so that i don't ever have to bring myself up in a podcast anymore ever because I hate talking about me so uh with that in the bag let's go ahead and go to our first commercial break and I will yell at you when we get back right after this and we're back We're going to get into the meat and potatoes of this bitch right now. Um, The Mueller report, uh, as you know, or should know, uh, dropped yesterday uh, to the public. About half of that motherfucker is redacted, but uh, we're going to get into the shit that isn't. And uh, we're going to talk about what I've read, cross-reference it with uh, with an NPR article, uh, kind of corroborating my take on things. Uh, I will post the link to that article. written by, by various members of the NPR staff uh, in the show notes for this episode. But uh, let's get right into it. So page 9 of the Mueller report says, and I quote, While the investigation identified numerous links between individuals with ties to the Russian government and individuals associated with the Trump campaign, the evidence was not sufficient to support criminal charges. So, oh, end quote. So, this section outlines how flimsy investigators eventually concluded the case was. That those involved with now familiar Russian Russian contacts actually might have broken the law. Even the meeting between top Trump campaign aides and a Russian delegation in New York City in 2016 doesn't have enough evidence associated with it to charge those involved with an alleged campaign finance violation. So... Um, I, I need it to be stressed that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. That this does not, by any stretch of the imagination, exonerate Trump or Trump staffers or the Trump campaign in general from, from uh, campaign finance violations or, or any other obstruction of justice. What this simply states is that there was enough shit hidden and encrypted that that uh, investigators were unable to to identify it uh, moving on in that same vein of uh, like evidence uh, hiding and destruction this is from page 18 of the report uh, again I quote Further, the office learned that some of the individuals we interviewed or whose conduct we investigated, including some associated with the Trump campaign, deleted relevant communications or communicated during the relevant period using applications that feature encryption, encryption, 
or that do not provide for long-term retention of data or communication records. In such cases, the office was not able to corroborate witness statements through comparison to contemporaneous communications or fully question witnesses about statements that appeared inconsistent with other known facts. Accordingly, while this report embodies factual and legal determinations that the office believes to be accurate and complete to the greatest extent possible, given these identified gaps, the office cannot rule out the possibility that unavailable information would shed additional light on or cast a new light on the events described in the report. End quote. The special counsel's investigation was exhaustive, it says, but it could only include evidence it could access. Situations in which evidence was destroyed or encrypted services were used meant that investigators could not check what they were learning against the electronic record. So, like, the investigators say they can't eliminate the possibility that the information they couldn't access would reveal more about the events that took place in 2016 and since they're saying is that the Trump campaign very intentionally and and uh, and skillfully uh, destroyed and uh, and kind of disfigured evidence um, page 10 of the report says quote in connection with that analysis we addressed the factual question whether members of the Trump campaign coordinated a term that appears in the appointment order with the Russian election interference activities. Like collusion, coordination does not have a settled definition in federal criminal law. We understood coordination to require an agreement, tacit or express, between the Trump campaign and the Russian government on election interference. That requires more than, two par- more than the two parties taking actions that were informed by or responsive to the other's actions or interests, end quote. Well, the burning question all along in the Russia investigation was what might constitute a violation of the law for the purposes of the inquiry. Meetings and contacts between Trump's 2016 campaign and Russians or their agents were reported in the press and became publicly known. So here is where Mueller's office explains the definition it used to analyze conduct and determine what would constitute lawbreaking, which this kind of like harkens back to like that whole Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky deal where it came down to like that depends on what your definition of is is. There's a lot of hangups and bullshit going on with purely just the definition of the word collusion or the word coordination, I guess, in this uh in this instance um again it's it's a clever misdirection but but not an exoneration uh in on pages 22 and 23 of the report i quote uh by the end of the 2016 u.s election the ira had the ability to reach millions of u.s persons through their social media accounts multiple ira controlled facebook groups and instagram accounts had hundreds of thousands of u.s participants ira controlled twitter accounts separately had tens of thousands of followers including multiple u.s political figures who retweeted ira created content end quote in the two and a half years since the 2016 election The number of people touched by Russia's election interference has continued to balloon. Reports uh, produced for Senate investigators last year, and I will have links to those reports in the show notes as well, 
uh, they revealed that IRA, like the Internet Research Agency, I'm not talking about the Irish Republican Army or any shit like that. I'm talking about the Internet Research Agency. I should have said that up top. <clears throat> uh, posts on Instagram received 187 million engagements and that the Internet Research Agency posts on Facebook received almost 77 million engagements. So... Uh, that that is like a broader reach of Russian social media efforts than than we had anticipated or that anybody knew of, um, which is interesting, but uh, not super relevant, but definitely interesting. Um, and then on page forty six of the report, uh, it it we're discussing now the uh, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, uh, and I quote. By no later than April 12, 2016, the GRU had gained access uh, to the DCCC, DCCC computer network. Uh, the GRU is um, like a Russian. Fuck, I don't remember exactly what it stands for right now, but I, I will link. I'll, I'll put that in the footnotes. But it's a Russian intelligence thing uh, entity. Uh, by no later than April 12, 2016, the GRU had gained access to the Department Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee computer network, and using the credential, using the credential stolen from a DCCC employee, who had been successfully spearfished the week before. Over the ensuing weeks, the GRU traversed the network, identifying different computers connected to the DCCC network. By stealing network access credentials along the way, including those of IT administrators with unrestricted access to the system, the GRU compromised approximately 29 different computers on the DCCC network. End quote. So, Russian intelligence agents had access to the networks of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and the Democratic National Committee for months. They, quote, traversed the Democratic Party's digital infrastructure in part by stealing the credentials of the people who were tasked with protecting it. Russian agents compromised at least 59 computers in all between April 12, 2016 and June 8, 2016. Uh, the special counsel's office also said that in the report. Um, so Russian intelligence has been, has been kind of hacking on both sides of the aisle, um, making much more clear their involvement uh, with the 2016 election. Not really much else to say about that. Uh, on page 58 of the report, I quote, in addition to targeting individuals involved with the Clinton campaign, GRU officers also targeted individuals and entities involved in the administration of the elections. Victims included U.S. state and local entities, such as state boards of elections, secretaries of state, and county governments, as well as individuals who worked for those entities. Uh, this, as end quote. this aspect of Russia's election interference exposed just how vulnerable U.S. elections actually fucking are. There remains no evidence that any votes were changed as a result of Russian cyber activity, but operators were able to break into a Board of Elections website in Illinois and steal voter data on thousands of voters. Uh, despite security improvements over the past two years and a newfound awareness of this threat, voting in America still, like, it remains a fucking massive target. It's, it's, so, it's so vulnerable and easy, you know? Why wouldn't it be? Uh, 
The decentralized nature of how elections are administered means states and localities are on the front line of defense against entire nation states. Like, like all of Russian intelligence working to like hack just the fucking voter boxes in Peoria, Illinois. Like, can you imagine? Can you imagine how how like defenseless just localities are in, in the United States against this kind of threat? And having a a president that that is allowing it and that is that is aiding this um it it's terrifying um and it remains unclear whether lawmakers will allocate adequate resources soon enough to further shore up the system before a presidential election that is about a year and a half away takes place so we'll see uh page 59 of the report and I quote similarly in November of 2016 the GRU sent spear phishing emails to over 120 email accounts used by Florida County officials responsible for administering the 2016 US election the spear phishing emails contained an attached word document coded with malicious software uh, commonly referred to as a Trojan that permitted the GRU to access the infected computer The FBI was separately responsible for this investigation. We understand the FBI believes that this operation enabled the GRU to gain access to the network of at least one Florida County government. The office did not independently verify that belief and as explained above, did not undertake the investigative steps that would have been necessary to do so. End quote. So this is new. Uh, Now the FBI believes that Russian attackers, GRU, which is, again, Russia's military intelligence agency, uh, gained access to the network of at least one Florida county. No county in the state has revealed the breach publicly, so we're not really sure, like, where it was yet. But uh, it also remains, yeah, it remains unclear which county, uh, and it remains unclear how long Russia had access to the county's network and exactly what information uh, they had gained access to. Um, Now, there's really not much that can be done about that presently. Um, Page 59 of the report, quote, Unit 74455 also sent spear phishing emails to public officials involved in election administration and personnel at companies involved in voting technology. In August 2016, GRU officers targeted employees of a redacted company, uh, a voting technology company that developed software used by numerous U.S. counties to manage voter rolls and installed malware, malware on the company network, end quote. The company referenced here seems to be VR Systems, a Florida-based company that makes voter registration equipment. Uh, In an interview with NPR's Pam Fessler six months after the 2016 election, the company's chief operating officer said Russian hackers were unsuccessful in breaking into their systems. But today's report, well, yesterday's report now, but when it was written, today's report uh, is an indictment filed last summer by Mueller's team. So that seems to disagree. Uh, One of the tough contradictions about American voting is the transparency, or lack thereof, from the companies responsible for election security. Even though elections are technically supervised at the state and local levels, in most cases the equipment that voters use to cast their ballots have their votes counted and to check in at the polls is run by companies in the private sector. So that makes forcing them to provide information about potential breaches or their own security practices incredibly fucking difficult. Um, Senator Ron Wyden, 
told uh, NPR that there is far too little transparency from voting machine vendors about whether their products are secure against hackers and foreign interference. Over and over again, the corporations that are essentially gatekeepers of our democracy have either lied or refused to answer questions from me, from states, and from security experts about what steps they've taken to protect our election infrastructure. I am convinced we cannot rely on these companies to do the right thing on their own. So, that's terrifying too. Like, nothing from this report, even if it's not criminally damning to the president, is absolutely mortifying just uh, just bit by bit fucking piecemeal none of this shit makes me comfortable bro page 77 of the report cohen was the only trump organization representative to negotiate directly with ic experts or its agents in approximately september 2015 cohen obtained approval to negotiate with russian real estate development corporation ic expert from candidate Trump, who was then president of the Trump Organization. Cohen provided updates directly to Trump about the project throughout 2015 and into 2016, assuring him the project was continuing. Cohen also discussed the Trump Moscow project with Ivanka Trump to design elements such as possible architects to use for the project and Donald J. Trump Jr. about his experience in Moscow and possible involvement in the project during the fall of 2015, end quote. So... During the campaign and into the Trump administration, the Trump team and Donald Trump himself regularly denied any involvement with Russia at all. But the Mueller report concludes that Donald Trump, Ivanka Trump, and Don Jr. were all apprised of a Trump Tower Moscow project that was being actively considered in 2015 and 2016. Elsewhere, the report makes clear that this wasn't a casual enterprise to the Trump family. It could have been a billion-dollar deal. The project ultimately didn't go forward, but the report makes clear that the Trump's claims about not having any business dealings with Russia were complete fucking bullshit. End my quote. I... This is... This has gone so far off the rails. Like, I can't begin to understand how this man is is even kind of still the president like you know the 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 succession of power fucking uh old old mike pence wouldn't be any fucking better but it's just it's just a principle at this juncture you know i'm mortified i'm so scared of what happens next what happens in 2020 when donald trump refuses to leave office Um, there's so much more about the Mueller report that, that I could talk about, but I, I'm exhausted by it already. I have no interest. So let's not right now. Um, I'm going to take another commercial break and, and after that, uh, I'll be back with some, with some lighter, less concerning news about torture after this. (laughs) 